would really appreciate your generosity in supporting what we're doing here. All right, let's go in. Resources today, um, people I got great ideas from. Scott McKnight, author, theologian, professor, one of my professors, and then uh, this lady, Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Uh, she's a communication pathologist, an audiologist. Is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. All right. She wrote this amazing book. <clears throat> um, it's called Switch on Your Brain. And I'm going to quote some of this today, but it's, it's got a lot of quantum physics in it. And it's like quantum physics for people like me who aren't scientific. And I'm like, oh, I can actually understand what she's talking about. Like it, it's kind of quantum physics for people who majored in English and had a 2.9 GPA undergrad. So makes it simple for me. Um, I'm going to light a candle here. So this candle, this is the candle that I use. It's got a dog hair on it. So it's very... Uh, <laughs> very lived lived in um it doesn't smell at all it's it's unscented it's it's not a glamorous candle i have no idea where i got it i just found it in our house and i use it uh whenever i do my daily prayers and i light it in what particular point of the prayer <clears throat> it's when i do um i'm gonna do my best not to set off the the smoke alarms or the fire alarms here um i light it as for a few reasons um this is a candle. Uh, I light it because it makes me feel warm, as an open flame usually does for us. Uh, it, it just creates a warm environment, hospitable. You know, whether it's a little candle, or a, a raging like campfire, or, or fire in a fireplace, it just makes uh, the environment better. It's also a symbolic invitation for me, for Christ, for His light to fill the darkness, um, in, in not only physically but but spiritually in my life. I want him to come near to me, particularly in that moment. And it reminds me of our scripture for the day um, in this season that we're in, <clears throat> that we want Christ to be illuminated. I want him to illuminate uh, our church, uh, our culture, our world, me personally, my family, all of these things. And our scripture for today is Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 677. If you want to turn there with me in your Bible. And there's my book. Look, a bookmark. I was using to mark the spot. Um, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 15. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 14. Read 14 and 15. Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So I just want to dwell on that today. Uh, another way to put it uh, is written in the message version of the Bible. And I love the way Eugene Peterson describes this verse in an extended manner. He says, you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to the others, or to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. The bowl that is, rep that is mentioned in Matthew 5, it represents darkness. You know, putting a bowl over a lampstand. Uh, and the darkness does its best to cover up light. Uh, and that's Christ. And the greatest attribute of Christ, the, the brightest light of his kingdom, is love. Like, that's the best gift he's given us, which also makes it 
the biggest target of Satan. It's something that uh, Satan's darkness is going to constantly try to put out to cover up, uh, to corrupt, to distort. Today is, on the church calendar, today is the second Sunday of Epiphany. If you've never heard of Epiphany, it's a Greek word that means manifestation. Uh, what it really actually means, it's the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, as represented in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, you probably heard of like the three wise men, even though there were more than three, or the, the, the magi as are sometimes referred to. They're the first Gentiles that laid eyes upon the Messiah. So they're the first non-Jewish people to meet Jesus. And so that's what Epiphany celebrates, is the light, the love of Christ, is now accessible to everyone. And that's what the season of, of Epiphany celebrates. There are six Sundays in Epiphany. Um, and it, it really, we, we, we're doing a series on Epiphany, the, and what the, um, the illumination of Christ actually means. And we're going to deep dive into a few specific topics that we really want to illuminate, that we want to shine Christ's light on in order to understand, in order to live into in a deeper and more profound manner. Um, and in order to understand the light, we need to understand the bowl of darkness that is trying to cover it up. So, I mean, after all, if it's the biggest gift from God, the darkness is Satan's attack on it. He's going to find incredibly brilliant and devious ways to try to cover up the light. So we're going to start with the bad news first. Isn't that what we all prefer anyway? Bad news first, good news last in, in any kind of a situation. Because there is bad, like there is, uh, we have to acknowledge the darkness of what's happening. Some of us, sometimes darkness is very obvious like there were some headlines by our president this week it's obviously that's not good but there are other times it's a lot more subtle and nuanced so we got to understand that before we get to the good news um, because love has been corrupted it has been co-opted and dr leaf says this in her book she says when we distort love <clears throat> we wire this perversion into our brains and in a sense we create brain damage and I don't have time, and we don't have time, for a sweeping expose on how love has been corrupted. Uh, I know all of us love a good documentary, like a good 10-part documentary. We don't have time for that this morning. But we do have time to highlight a few pieces of the darkness that is threatening a pure understanding and practice of Christian love. And the first corruption that I want to highlight is what I would call contractual love. This is love that has been distorted by consumerism. So here, let me give you, provide a few examples. There's many. But these are some of the ones I, I notice or, or I think are prevalent or tempting for us to participate in. Uh, if you're in a friendship or relationship, listening and partaking in the pain and openness of others while refusing to share your own. That's consumeristic love. Uh, love goes both ways. If you're in a friendship or relationship where someone's revealing intimate parts of themselves and you refuse to do the same, that's consumeristic. That's contractual love. It's an effect of pride. And the antidote to that is vulnerability, which we're going to devote an entire sermon to later in this series on vulnerability. <clears throat> There's what I would call capitalistic love is another form of corrupted love in which your profit is the end game. And anytime I critique, if I say capitalism in a negative way, I get, uh, for some reason, people love to slap the label of socialist on me. I'm not a socialist. All right, just for the record, <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Uh, we can only think in a false dichotomy of, oh, if you're not a capitalist, you're a socialist. And if you're not a socialist, you're a capitalist. There's more than those two ways to live. They're the politics of Christ. So capitalistic love, <clears throat> your profit is the end game. So if your situation, your circumstances, happiness, or comfort 
is the motivation for your words or actions or friendship with another, that's not true love. That's capitalism masquerading as love. So you got to think in your relationships, are your motives in a relationship for the good of you or the good of the other? Because in Christ's kingdom, it's always for the good of the other. Uh, and then finally, we're living in what I might call the age of distance. Um, <clears throat> the internet has, this is an ancient problem, but the internet has enhanced this problem uh, in our current culture. We have more of an ability to be with others, but not be present with them. So let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, I'm taking grad school right now via Zoom. Anybody ever been in a Zoom meeting, video conference thing? So Zoom, you, you type in this, <clears throat> you get on the web, type in an address, and they beam you in. And the way our class is set up is there's an actual class taking place in Chicago. It's a professor, their students live. They have a huge screen in the classroom. They can see me. I can see them. I can see the professor and the students. And whoever's speaking, the camera shifts to them. So it's like I'm virtually in the classroom. They can talk to me. I can talk to them. It's awesome. However, I have the ability to be, it looks like I'm with them, but it's not. So, for example, last Monday night, I don't know if you guys were into, the, into college football, but there was a national championship game, and it was happening during my class. And because I had the advantage of they can't see my computer screen, I can stare at my computer and have the appearance of being with them but I'm watching the national championship game. And I didn't watch the whole thing, but there were a few bits and pieces where I was monitoring the score, and I'm like, oh, someone like George's on the 10-yard line. I'm going to bring it up real quick. And I'm watching that for like a five-minute clip, but it looks like I'm totally engaged in class. And the Internet gives us the, the ability to – it makes us feel like we're with people, but we're, we can be, not be present with them. So that's one example. Social media is obviously uh, another um, – I'm not sure if you guys heard or not, but like I said, the U.S. president said some unfortunate uh, things this week about immigrants, and, and um, they're unsurprising, but and other countries. And social media, I don't know if you're on Twitter or Facebook, it was a buzz regarding that. There, there were some reactions to it. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Uh, but in the age of distance, it's interesting to see reactions on Facebook and Twitter because I, I read through a couple of strings. I didn't really engage in it because um, it's just kind of disheartening to see the way that people talk to one another. But there are a couple strings I read through, and I kept thinking, one, there's no way that you would talk like that to that person if you were sitting next to them. People are so brave in the age of distance. And I, that's a problem when you speak, like when the way you speak to someone would be different if you were present with them. That's, that's a problem. That's distorted love. Um, and if you're present with other people, your perception might actually change. You're a better listener when you are present and near to someone. Uh, nearness does something miraculous. This is the theology of Christianity. God came to earth because nearness changes us. It changes the relationship. But we live in the age of distance uh, where we have the complete ability to live and engage distantly. And that can, dis it, can. it doesn't always, but it can distort uh, true love, Christ-like love. One more example of the age of distance is our, <laughs> our culture's idolatrous dependency on politics and government. And if you know me, you, you know I love to critique this topic. So bear with me. This might seem, sound like hyperbole, but, and if you think it's a little extreme, just bear with me and 
we'll play this out. Democracy feeds us the lie that we can make a difference through the distant efforts of voting the right people into positions of power and influence as some sort of a justice middleman. That's what democracy is. I'm not saying democracy is evil. I'm saying people have an evil dependence upon it. So that's the critique, is that it can coerce us into the age of distance, into a comfortable, distant engagement to injustice. Um, like, if you vote correctly and wisely, uh, get the right people into office, people have a tendency to stop there when it comes to their relationship to injustice. And they get comfortable, like, oh, I, I believe the right things. I said the right things. I voted for this or for that person. And that cannot be the extent of our relationship to injustice. Because, and I've said this before. Uh, with Christ, justice is always relational. Every single time in scripture, it is within proximity. You are near. You are in relationship with people who are experiencing that. There is no justice outside of relationship. You can't bring heaven to earth from a distance. You have to come near. And that is what love looks like. Um, you have to be, and, and again, this is, you can disagree with me, but I think you have to be in close relationship, deep, intimate love with people who are suffering. I think that is part of the Christian calling. I think that is clear in the New Testament, and I think that's clear in the, in the life and teachings of Christ. The age of distance um, democracy, even voting, it can give us a comfortable mirage of impact. I mean, it gives us, it, it can soothe us falsely and, and lure us into that, into keeping a distant relationship. So these are the types of distortions and corruptions. Um, there, there are more, but they're not new. They're ancient. Um, thankfully, Jesus reveals his feelings of these corruptions and he also gives us a new definition of love in the New Testament. So now it's time for the uh, quote-unquote epiphany. All right, let's shine the light. Let's, let's, let's look at the good news. Let's illuminate the love of Christ that we have access to and the love that we might need to uncover or rediscover in our lives. So this section is in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And I'm going to put it on screen if the screen, screen cooperates for us. It's, he says, uh, or this is a story about uh, Christ entering the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Uh, so quick note of context about the temple courts. People would come to the temple, travel long distances during Passover to worship at the temple, to come near to God, because that's where they thought God lived, the temple but in Judaism, they needed a dove or a sheep to sacrifice, or they might need to exchange Roman coins for Jewish ones to pay an offering as an act of worship. Naturally, this was a lucrative business for money exchangers and people selling animals for sacrifice. Contractual and capitalistic relationships were running wild in the temple courts. All right? There were people benefiting of, by putting up barriers between people and God. Here's how Jesus felt about it. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, this is old, quoting the Old Testament, zeal for your house will consume me. 
The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So just try to imagine the habits that Jesus is disrupting here. These are age-old, decades, probably centuries-old ways of doing things at the temple, and Jesus just starts flipping out. All right, this, this is really going to piss people off what he's doing. And they're like, who gives you authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words of Jesus that Jesus had spoken. He's talking about his body, like, destroy me, and I'm going to rise again. You cannot, this is a new definition of love. There is nothing you can do to stop it. Jesus destroyed the notion of contractual, capitalistic, and, and uh, like the age of distance type of relationships with this act of foreshadowing. He cleared the courts, and then he cryptically announced, I'm the new temple. So his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection announced the end of the age of distance and contractual love and distorted love. The biblical word for this is new covenant, meaning it's a new agreement a new definition of love. And there are no more barriers, there's no more condition, there are, there's no more hoops to jump through. This is a love that comes near to all and is good news for all. And in Christ's kingdom, we don't live by contractual relationships. We live by covenant relationships. This is the good news. So what's a covenant relationship? Covenant is a rugged commitment to the life, love, and well-being of another. It's unconditional. Love is given with no expectation of return. This is what we believe. This is what we practice. Um, Hans Ernst von Balthasar, who's a Swiss Catholic priest, he says, love alone is credible. Nothing else can be believed, and nothing else ought to be believed. And I read that, and I'm like, I, I mean, I gravitate to the extreme. Obviously, I just critiqued probably some stuff that might be near and dear to you. Um, I gravitate to this because it sounds absurd. Love is the only thing that's credible. On the surface, it sounds crazy. Christian love, I, I, I get the, um, wh what seems like, you read the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes and you think, like, that's impossible. Like, that, what he's talking about, that way of life, that's not even possible to live that way. So it looks on the surface like Christian love is absurd, but it really is what gives meaning and restoration to life. And um, if... The critiques or maybe some of the things that when we talked about the bad news, like the lampstand that was the darkness, if that bothered you, maybe love isn't holding a high enough place in your life. So ask yourself tough questions like, what is my mind most occupied by right now in this season or this week or, or this month? Uh, what is looming large in your mind and in your heart right now? Really think about that because if it's not love, you're missing out. You, you've let the, the bowl cover up some of the light that God is shining in your life. The love Jesus exhibited and showed in this passage and through his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection is our epiphany. We are all in on this. I've been playing a lot of poker with my boys, so I, I like the term all in a lot. I'm all in. I say that a lot. Um, and for those of us who might be skeptical of this theology, playing out as a philosophy of life, actually bringing... Like, if we actually believe this, will it actually improve the world? You know, it, it sounds absurd. It sounds idealistic. 
borderline silly and ridiculous. Uh, but don't worry, I've got some quantum physics to prove my point. Um, in case you haven't realized yet, science is not the enemy of God. Uh, it's the friend of God. So I'm going to read a section from her book that I just found just really cool. Just a little example here uh, of how the politics of Jesus, the definition of love that Jesus provides, uh, is actually, it, it changes the world. It changes our brains. It changes relationships. So... <clears throat> I'm going to read this section about an experiment. An innovative experiment was done that showed that we are capable of impacting each other's minds and brains, even when sensory signals like the five senses, you know, electromagnetic signals, mirror neurons, and insula activity have all been removed. This impact only worked with meditators who had built a relationship with each other not those in the control group who didn't have a relationship. In the experiment, researchers got two people to meditate next to each other in an electronically shielded room called a Faraday cage. I don't know if that's even how you pronounce it. They separated them into two separate Faraday cages, and as they continued to meditate, researchers shone light in the eye of one of the meditators. The part of the brain that lit up in that person's brain also lit up in the other meditator's brain, even though there was no sensory or electromagnetic connection. That blew my mind when I read that. The only connection they had was love. That's it. They eliminated every other connection these people could possibly have, and love literally lit up the darkness in the same spot in their brains, all because they had a relationship and they were thinking of one another. That I'm just, whew, I love that. It is the most, love is the most powerful force in the world. And it is scientifically credible, which I love. And if you don't buy that example, maybe you believe in one of the other 1,200 studies that have been done linking prayer to overall health and longevity. <coughs> prayer works. Love works. And if that, if I haven't convinced you by now, I'm probably not going to. So let's say, let's, let me jump to the conclusion that we believe in this specific Christ-like love and that love alone is credible for life change. What do we do with that belief? Because our epiphany needs to lead to action, to change, to movement. So I'm going to sum it up with some thoughts from Scott McKnight. Um, he defines covenant relationship in this way, in four ways. He says, number one, rugged commitment, meaning no two humans are completely compatible. Love anyway. It's easy to love people you like. It's not easy to love people you don't like. It takes a humbled and mature Christ follower to love someone you don't like. But that is our calling. It's a rugged commitment. The second thing is a rugged commitment to be with. Because Emmanuel, the word for the Messiah, for Jesus, means God with us. It's the principle of presence. So to love someone means to be with them. And this is simple. Who do you need to be with more often? All right, maybe you need to spend more time with them. Like you actually need to carve out time in your schedule to be with them. Uh, maybe you need to be more present in the moments that you are with them. All right, not watching. So, for example, I, I mean, I used the Zoom example earlier. Yesterday I was watching the NFL playoffs and I was playing a game with my boys. And I was not fully present with either thing. It, it, you can't, it's, it's not possible to multitask. It's not something we're capable of. So 
maybe in those moments of being with, you need to be wholly with, um, not only physically, but mentally with them, present and engaged. And the third thing, he says it's a rugged commitment to be for, which means the principle of advocacy. It means you advocate for them. You're their fan. You cheer them on. You support them. You pray for them. Who do you need to be for? Like Who needs to hear from you uh, with words of support and affirmation and, and praying for them, advocating for them? How can you exhibit that to them? So if you want to think, if you want to get real intentional there, Google the five love languages and try to figure out how people receive love. So I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to remember all of, off uh, my, from memory, but um, one of them is words of affirmation. That's my love language. All right, so when, when Carrie, Carrie knows the best way to love me is to affirm me verbally. That is water to my soul. For some other people, it's quality time or it's, uh, it's acts of service. But figure out what's the best way for me to be for this person, to cheer them on, to support them, to affirm them. And then the fourth thing, he says it's a rugged commitment to be unto, which means the principle of direction. This is the uh, transforming love that happens in an unconditional relationship. You are influencing them, and they are influencing you. You're being transformed by the relationship. So think about your most important relationships. Are you allowing them to transform you, to challenge you, to restore you? Because that is the way that covenant love works. It is a back-and-forth relationship. Um, if you want to marginalize someone, uh, make them feel like it's a one-way love. Like Make them feel like uh, they are your project. Unfortunately, that happens a lot in our culture. Love is a two-way covenant relationship in which both parties are transformed. So doing all this, I just listed a bunch of stuff to do. Uh, it may be overwhelming because it sounds like I've got to add all that. It's not adding. It's about doing more with the time that you've been given. So don't think like I've got to do more. Just think I've got to redeem the time that God has already given to me. Dr. Leaf also goes on to say this in her book. She says, research shows that even 30 seconds a day of direct heartfelt intention will alter not only your own destiny, but impact the lives of others in this generation and the next three generations at least. 30 seconds a day. You've got that. What, you've got, what, you, what we need to remember is that we are people of faith and the seeds of love that we are sowing, even if it's just 30 seconds a day, that God is going to do a lot with those seeds that we're planting. That is the faith that we have as Christians. Last week we talked about hope. That's hope. We expect God to water and, and to sprout those seeds of love that we are sowing uh, in the lives of others. God is going to do a lot with a little, and that is the deep and internal impact, or eternal impact of love. And no matter what darkness surrounds us, um, we're, we, it, it's at the beginning of the year. Um, and, I, you know, in moments where we see, uh, I, I don't, it, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I think you guys are like this, you know, you see stuff that's said, um, particularly, the, obviously what the president said a few days ago is haunting. Because um, what it also reveals is that there's a lot of people that actually believe that. He's verbalizing the beliefs of others. And that's being said and believed in our culture. It's really easy for that to turn into a bowl of darkness, covering up our light. 
it's, it's easy for that to happen. But what we have to remember, our epiphany, is, and, and the reason it's so important for us to gather as community to worship, whether it's here on Sunday, uh, missional community, uh, the prayer, like the guys getting together on Tuesday night, every opportunity we have to be with people and to share love, we have to believe and expect that God is going to alter earth with that. Like heaven is going to come to earth. That's what we believe. Don't let the bowl, whatever, it's, you know, maybe it's words from politicians, maybe it's really personal circumstances that are tough right now for you, that feel like darkness is just kind of creeping in. Um, we have an opportunity and, and, a, and, a, and a Christ who is continually pushing the bowl of darkness off of the light. And we have to remember that the light cannot be covered up. It's there always. It's uncovered, and it's never going to go away. Let's pray.